Well, this morning I'd like to talk to you about spiritual warfare and how we go about gaining God's power for an uncommon battle. Now, I will admit, there are a few sermons that in their preparation bring up some things that you don't deal with every Sunday. And when you announce that you're doing a series on spiritual warfare, you get people showing up wondering what kinds of weird stuff you're going to talk about. You know, we're going to talk about, you know, demons. We're going to talk about Satan. Yes, we're going to talk about that kind of stuff. And it's a little intimidating because, unfortunately, sometimes talking about the occult in uh, negative spiritual influences, that's big business. You can talk tomfoolery and you can sell it in a Christian bookstore. And so what I hope to do is to really provide some, some Bible-based common sense when we talk about this concept of spiritual warfare. It's not to be Hollywood about it, but to be biblical about it. <clears throat> and there's a great story. I don't know if you, uh, how, how often you spend time in the Old Testament. Somebody came up to me the other day and said, man, I heard this great story in the Old Testament about these kids making fun of a bald guy. And then the bald guy cursed him and a bear came out of the woods and tore up those boys for making fun of him. That's in the Bible. Well, there are some pretty crazy stories in the Bible. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a great story that I'll tell you here just quickly because it's, it's a fantastic way for us to start a series on spiritual warfare. Uh, basically, the setting of the story is that um, the king of Syria, the king of Aram, was battling against Israel. And as you do when you're going to battle, you make plans. You consult with your generals, uh, your sergeants, you, all, all the way down, kind of on the depth chart, with everyone, so that when it finally gets to the foot soldiers, your plan is implemented just the way you want it to. So the king of Aram <clears throat> is making these plans. He's um, uh, figuring out the logistics. He's looking on a map and trying to figure out how best he can sabotage or ambush the king of Israel. And the problem is, at every point where he makes these specific plans, the king of Israel knows specifically what the king of Syria had planned and is able to uncannily counter everything that his enemy plans. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the king of Israel knows what I'm talking about in my kingly tent of privacy. So he gathers all of his generals, all of his uh, officers, and he wants to know who is, who's spilling the beans, who's the informant, who's the spy that is telling the king of Israel everything that's going on. You can imagine that's not a real fun conversation to have because uh, if they figure out who it is, that person is going to die. And they all go, king, it's, it's not me, 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 all the way down the line. He goes, well, then who is it? King, it's the prophet Elisha, a prophet in the nation of Israel who has the ability to announce to the king of Israel even the things that you whisper in your bedroom. He says, listen, God has given this, this man the power to even be able to announce your pillow talk, the things that you think are private, the things that you think are whispered and hushed. He can, he can tell. And so now uh, the battle plan changes. Instead of going to war with Israel... Uh, the king of Aram uh, sets his sights on Elisha. So instead of focusing on the nation, he wants to get this man who is confounding all of his war plans. So through his network of spies, he figures out where uh, Elisha is staying. And the king overnight sends a massive army to surround the city. 
Uh, at sundown, he knows Elisha's in the city. And while the sun is set, he surrounds it so that when Elisha wakes up in the morning, there is no escape. The city's surrounded on all four sides. And so <clears throat> through the night, you have this uh, massive army that moves in. And when the sun begins to rise, the story gets really interesting. If you've never read it, it's just a fantastic story. Elisha, um, <clears throat> as most prophets do, had an assistant that traveled with him. He's not named, but he, it, the, the man of God had an assistant, a servant that traveled with him. So as the sun comes up, the servant wakes up, and when he uh, looks out the window, he sees this huge, incredible army that has surrounded the city to capture his master. Absolutely freaks out. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? There's no gap in, in, in the way that they have cordoned off the city. We are, we are stuck. You can only imagine the terror that this young man had. <clears throat> Yet when he reports this to his master, Elisha, Elisha, for all intents and purposes, is calm, cool, and collected. And Elisha responds rather cryptically to his worried companion and says something to the effect that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. Now you have to imagine that his servant went, huh? What you talking about, Elisha? Something's not right here. Elisha then prays for the young man to see the situation as he sees it. And he prays to God to open the young man's eyes and what? does he then see? It's just interesting. He doesn't say that he sees the army of... Uh, he doesn't, it doesn't say that he sees the Iranian army anymore. It says that instead of seeing with his physical eyes the army that has surrounded the city, with spiritual eyes now he sees angelic warriors that have surrounded the Iranian army with chariots and horses of fire. It's a fascinating story. And here's what I think makes it so interesting for us. Elisha was a servant of God. He was a prophet. Now, the Bible doesn't say this specifically, but we can assume that Elisha's uh, servant, his helper, was also a devout Jewish follower too. Both men, followers of Yahweh. Yet when they are encountered, when they encounter a difficulty, Elisha looks at the same, looks out the same window that the servant does and sees something completely different. The young man sees it, and all he can do is see with his human eyes, the organs of vision that allow him to see the physical army that's standing before him. Elisha, on the other hand, can see with the eyes of faith, and he was able to see not just the physical men standing before him, but the spiritual realities that surrounded him on every side. And as we begin to talk about spiritual warfare, this is, this is a key story to kind of introduce us to this concept. So many times when we read the morning paper, we pay attention to polling data. We pay attention to the stock market. We pay attention to the unemployment rate. And we get really in a tizzy about these things that we see with our eyes when we're unaware of all the things that are happening spiritually around us. Listen, those things are not unimportant. But if those are the things that we can see with our human eyes, what else is going on spiritually that's graver, more dangerous, and even more uh, potent threat than simply those things that we can see with our eyes. As Christians, certainly we need to be concerned about things that we see with our eyes. We need to be concerned about the um, pornification of our country, of primetime TV, 
We need to be concerned about vulgarity. We need to be concerned about um, economics. But our concern is predominantly spiritual. And what's great is when you focus on the spiritual, it overflows into all of the practical areas of life. But if we focus simply on the things that we see, it's easy to do that without any spiritual concern whatsoever. And so this morning, for our, our food, for our meal from the Scriptures this morning, I'd like to direct your attentions to, uh, attention to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. You have, if, if you're like me, you have likely heard this passage preached dozens of times. And for that very reason, I wanted to do everything I could to avoid this passage. But as uh, I had the opportunity to just uh, prayerfully study, there just was not a better passage for us to go to as we talk about the realities of spiritual warfare. And so while it's only 11 verses, it is an atom bomb of nutrition for our souls as we talk about this topic. And Paul begins first by telling us how crucial God's strength is for the battle before us. Look with me at verse 10 and verse 12. Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul's telling us that God's strength, our first point, enables His people to stand against powerful and influential foes. The first command that we see here uh, that we need to listen to, uh, the first command is literally to be made strong. In most of your English trans- translations, it says, finally, be strong. But the, the verb is actually in a passive voice, indicating that this strength is something that happens to us. It doesn't say, be strong in your own power. He doesn't say, uh, do P90X. He doesn't say, go join a gym. He says, be made strong in the Lord. Now, this is assuming a couple things. It is assuming when it comes to spiritual warfare that we do not have the strength to fight this. We we are not strong in and of ourselves. We need strength, and and, and we believe that there is an empowering that comes to us, a strengthening that is done to Christians to enable them to resist the devil. The Bible says it. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. He's not looking for a fight. He's just looking for the easy ones that he can pick off. Resist the devil. And so this strength comes, uh, not from ourselves, but it comes from, or specifically in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. This is God's power that we're dealing with here, and we have to keep that in mind. Uh, There are all kinds of movies out there that kind of play on this theme of what would you do if you had a superpower? Able to leap tall buildings, and a single bound. They ask, what would you do if you had some kind of supernatural power? And we must make certain that we understand God's purposes for His power. It's not for us to um, perform impressive actions. Ooh, wow. Was that computer generated or was that real? That's not God's purpose for His power. It's not that we do impressive actions, but that we might live obediently. It's not for personal advantage that, wow, I get a book deal now because I can do crazy things. But it's an order that we might stand with God 
and against sin. Now the problem is, we all want to be made much of. We would love to have a superpower so that we get on Fox News, we get on the Today Show. That's not God's purpose in giving us power. His purpose in giving us power is to give us the power to live for Him. Here's the problem in most of our churches. People go to church don't look any different than people in the world. So we have all this power that is available to us and we don't even care to plug into the wall unit. We don't even care to put it in the socket. Because if God said, hey, I'll make you an action movie star if you tap into my power, yeah, we all want that. We want the contract. But if God's power is for obedient living, are we still, are we still interested in God's power? Not for impressive action, for obedient living. Not for personal advantage, but to stand with God and against sin. And we have to ask ourselves, why is God's strength in this first point? Why is it so crucial? When you look at verse 12, friends, it just seems manifestly obvious. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, it can be. We can struggle with flesh and blood. You know, it happens, uh, a great principle they teach you in seminary is that Ephesians 5 comes before Ephesians 6. Um, you pay a lot of money for that, that insight. Um, <clears throat> but in Ephesians 5, what do they talk about right before they get into Ephesians 6? Family relationships. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Marriage can be an issue of spiritual warfare, can it not? There is no way for a husband to live the way God intends or for a wife to live the way God intends without putting on the strength that God provides. There's a reason why <laughs> Ephesians 6 is happening where it does. But our, our, our struggle is not specifically or exclusively against flesh and blood. But listen to this. Against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We cannot possibly stand up to our foes in our own power. I wonder in my own life and in, in, in the lives of our churches around the country why humility is not a more sought-after virtue. And I know why it is. Humility is not popular. And I hope, I pray that as a congregation of believers, we fully understand that we are completely incapable of living one shred of the Christian life in our own strength. Do you realize that? If you have come to church this morning in your own power, you know what the Bible says that is? Coming to church in your own power is sin. It's religion. It's not a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're incapable of doing anything related to the Christian life on our own. And so this morning, if you're living the Christian life in your own power, I'm not quite sure what to call it. But it's not the Christian life. It's some cheap knockoff. It's some low-level imitation. And the Bible would tell us to repent. God's power is available. If you are consistently losing the battle against temptation and sin, if you are perpetually defeated and depressed in your Christian lifestyle, it's because you don't have God's power. And the only way for you to get it is to say, God... Forgive me for trying to live your life in my power. I need your strength to live your life.
So there's a message for us this morning. We don't need any more imitation Christians. There are millions of them. The market is flooded. We need people who are willing to be the real thing. Why is it so important to state this so forcefully? Um, Because there's a great truth. God's power is available. Christians don't need to struggle living for Christ. God's power is available. We have to avail ourselves of it. And here's, here's the truth. If God tells us to be strong in the Lord, we can presume that he is standing by ready to give it to us. If he says, you be strong in the strength of the Lord, then we can assume when we pray for that strength, that is a prayer he delights to offer. He wants to strengthen his people. He's just a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. There's a great contrast between uh, being filled with the Spirit and being possessed by a demon. Nobody signs up to be possessed by a demon. But the Holy Spirit will only come where he's welcome. Man, there are times, I, I will admit, I wish that the Holy Spirit possessed people and took them over contrary to their will. That's not right, is it? You have to be willing to be a vessel for God to come in and transform your life and give you his power. And so we have to state this forcefully because we are very easily, as people, satisfied with comfortable and convenient religion. And that's not the Christian message. As we'll see in just a moment, God's conception of what the Christian life is is not to make you happy, not to make you comfortable, not to make you convenient, but to make you a warrior. For you to be content with sleeping on a cot instead of a queen-sized waterbed. For you to be content with uh, the rations that he gives instead of fancy meals at five-star restaurants. God wants us to be warriors. He wants us to be an army, not simply an audience that comes for a -a once-a-week message and then lives the way that we want to the rest of the week. So one of the troubling things we see in this passage is when we look at our foes, boy, this is just so intimidating. He lists all these people, uh, rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces, and look where it says that they are, verse 12. They are in the heavenly places. And when we think of heaven, we don't think of demonic rulers, demonic powers, demonic world forces, evil spiritual forces being there. This is not the first time that it's talked about that. Heaven is not just a place for fat-bellied babies in diapers with wings to fly around. That, that's, you don't find that in the Bible. There's not a bunch of like smurfs running around in heaven, you know, playing harps and floating around. Um, when it says the heavens, a better word for that is to say spiritual places. Um, and hell is a spiritual place. Heaven is a spiritual place. In that sense, they're of the same kind, but there's a divide between them. And so it's saying in the heavenlies, in the spiritual places, there are bad spiritual forces at work in the same way that there are good spiritual forces at work. And I think what it's doing here, there are some people that have advanced these um, assumptions that what's being talked about in verse 12 is specific kinds of demonic forces. Rulers, who are kind of the, the devil's generals, and then you've got um, the powers, which are maybe his uh, you know, lieutenant colonels. I, I, don't think, I don't think Paul's trying to get specific about that. I think he's trying to say that a raid against the Christian is a hierarchy of sophisticated organization that is uh, focused completely on confounding God's plan in this world. So I don't think he's like, giving us an email, email address for you know, the, the demon of you know, the Piedmont area. That's not it. He's just saying that spiritual forces are arrayed against us, that their organization is significant and sophisticated 
And if you don't have God's power, you've lost the battle already. And so a couple verses to kind of remind us of the battle that is going on when we hear about spiritual forces in the spiritual places. Colossians 1.16. You might just jot down. I'm going to read four or five passages to you. Colossians 1.16 says this. <clears throat> For by him, by Christ, all things were created. All things, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Christ. So when we talk about these powers that are apparent in verse 12, they're created by Christ. Colossians 2.15. Not only were they created by Christ, but it says when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. God beats these rulers, powers, spiritual forces, by what he's done for us in Jesus. Ephesians 1, 19 through 21 says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. Our focus when we talk about spiritual warfare doesn't need to be on all of the boogeymen on the, on the dark side. It needs to be on the victory that we have won in Christ. God wins through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.10. God's plan in, in doing everything that he's done in Christ to defeat the, 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 the evil powers is so that, Ephesians 3.10, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Guys, when you come to church, and you come in God's strength, not in your own strength, you're participating in what Ephesians 3.10 does. You are making a cosmic declaration that Jesus has won. And no matter how many fangs or long fingernails the bad guys have, we don't have to fear them. Because greater is he who is in we, not just me, than he that than he who is in the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. When Jesus hands the kingdom over to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. We have to remember, we may not like to think of spiritual forces in the heavenlies, but where did rebellion against God start? You remember Satan was an angel. And his rebellion began not on earth, but in heaven. And so the spiritual places, the heavenlies, are more complex than I think we sometimes assume. So we indeed face a serious foe. But the great news is that we serve an even greater Savior. John tells us that greater is he in us than he who is in the world. And because of this truth, there is an awesome application for us this morning. To the extent that you are strong in the Lord. Victory over the worst that Satan can provide is guaranteed. That's an awesome truth. Satan seeks to work your woe. And to the extent that you are strong in the Lord, he can throw the worst that he wants to at you and you will make it. Because God provides a strength that we need. So let's say that we agree with the Bible that we need God's strength. We, we need God's strength to get through. What supermarket do we go to to get that? Do they carry God's strength in a pill at Walmart? Is it a vitamin that you take? How do we go about getting We need it. 
How do we get it? Well, Paul goes on by telling us that God's strength is provided only through the tools that he gives. And he continues on in verses 13 through 17. The second verb. He says, take up. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul gives us our second verb. The first verb is, be strong in the Lord. The second command is to put on the full armor so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I love this. uh, I'm a guy. I like guns. I like swords. I like knives. Um, I know there are others of you here. You don't need to say amen. Um, When Paul says, take up the full armor, the word that he uses is is panoplion. It's a Greek word that means a full complement of arms. Now, I don't know if you've um, been to Orlando. They have these really cheesy resorts called... uh, There's one in South Carolina called Medieval Times. Horribly cheesy, but every guy has to do them to become a man. You know, you have to go and watch, you know, the fake sword fight. And uh, what, what happens is you have an image in your mind that every king has a secret room in his castle that's the armory. And you know what the armory is? Um, it's not where the National Guard goes. The armory is um, where the king keeps all of his weapons for all of his knights. So you walk into the room, and there's a display on the wall of all these swords kind of laid out, and then all these shields laid out, and all these swinging thingies, you know, all laid out. Everything is laid out. Arrows, bows, javelins, spears, the whole nine yards. And you walk in, and you go, wow, this is a lot of weapons. When Paul says, take on the full armor, he says, be impressive. Put it all on. I mean, get the, the suit armor on, get the, get the weapons, hide them everywhere, and just be, be ready for battle. Have a wide and intimidating display of force. That is the full armor of God. He's saying, uh, this is the word picture to think about, is medieval times, the armory, where the swords go. And in verses 13 through 17, he then lists all of these different components of God's armor. He ta- and and, and the, the important thing is, don't get hung up when he says, take up the belt of truth. Truth doesn't just need to be a belt. He, I, I think Paul could have said, the helmet of truth, the sword of truth. The issue is not the component of armor. It's the adject- adjective to describe it. Truth, salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. The, the point is the adjective to the piece of armor, not the piece of armor. So don't, don't get hung up that, you know, truth is only a belt. That's, that's not the point. But he lists all these components of the armor. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and scripture. And these are preciously awesome things. Faith is awesome. Scripture is wonderful. But from our perspective, they sure don't seem like weapons. We, we've just said we've got a terrible foe up against us. And God says, hey, I've given you the Bible. I've given you truth. Use that as a weapon. And uh, I don't know. Give me the power of invisibility. Now that's a weapon that I want. You know, temptation comes, I get into a compromising situation, and I can just like disappear and appear someone. That's the kind of weapon that I'd like. You know, give me, give me the power of mind control. 
I'll be the world's most awesome evangelist. Imagine that. If God said, instead of these weapons, let's give you the weapons that you want. You now have the power of mind control. Man, if John Bennett had that, when he prayed our offertory prayer, we'd have the biggest offering we've ever had if somebody had the power of mind control. How awesome would that be? You know, I'd even, I wouldn't mind, you know, the power of ventriloquism. Hey, you, bald guy. Yeah, you. You need Jesus. You know, we don't want the weapons that God says that he gives because we look at them and we go, ah, kind of been there, done that. Truth, righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, and scripture. Give me something I can use. And the problem is we display how much we don't get it by not appreciating what God gives to us. And so here, just real quickly, I'd like to talk briefly about why these things are weapons, how they are weapons. You know what a Sunday school answer is? You, know, it's, it, you, you, you probably didn't really listen to the question, but you just start out like God, Jesus, or the Bible, and you have like a 90% chance of getting it right. Um, God is not giving us Sunday school answers when he talks about weapons for our warfare. We're not just throwing out salvation, scripture, uh, truth. Uh, how are these things weapons? <clears throat> Number one, truth. If you don't know it, the Bible says you'll get tricked into believing non-truth. Just a few chapters before in Ephesians 4.14, it warns about being tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The Bible says have substance, have conviction about what you believe. When it comes to a presidential election, there are moral issues at stake in every election that we ever participate in. Don't allow a 30-second commercial to change your... Well, I guess I'm voting for this guy now. I didn't know that. Have some conviction about voting for what is true. Don't be tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And just as the belt helped protect your midsection, truth protects the guts of Christianity. If Christianity is not based on truth, then it's just a warm, fuzzy ritual that we go through that doesn't actually mean anything. Maybe it's true for us and not true for anybody else. Then it's not true. If it's true, it's true. So truth, we have to know it or we'll be subject to trickery. Righteousness. When the Bible talks about righteousness, there's two kinds of righteousness that it talks about. It talks about the righteousness that when we come to Christ and we repent and place our faith in Christ, at that moment, we stand before God as a judge and he says, because you've trusted in my son, you're going from guilty to not guilty. And he takes Christ's righteousness and applies it to our account, and takes our sin, and he applies it to Christ's account. That's imputed righteousness. That's legal righteousness. But here's the thing that happens. Every person who experiences the imputed righteousness of Christ, if you have repented and believed, and you said, I'm a sinner, the only way for me to get my sin cleaned up is to trust Jesus. God goes, okay, because you've trusted in Jesus, you now have my righteousness. When that righteousness, like a seed, gets implanted in your soul, what happens in every Christian is instead of just having imputed righteousness, then you start to perform practical righteousness. The story is told of um, St. Augustine, one of the great writers in, uh, in the uh, early, early days of the church. He was a wicked kid, a, a wicked young adult. Um, he was a womanizer. And uh, he was gloriously and radically saved. 
And he had become a Christian, and not just a Christian, but a scholar, a theologian, who was able to write books that were incredibly helpful at his time. Um, he, he tells in his testimony, uh, one of his books, that two years after his conversion, he ran into a lady friend who he had known before his conversion. And she wanted to get to know Augustine again. And he saw her coming, and he just he started going the other way. And she said, oh, Augustine, it's I. And he said, but it's not I. What's he, what's he saying? He's a different person now. He is not the same person that he was. And whereas before he was saved, that kind of practical righteousness was not even on the radar screen for him. Because Christ had imputed his righteousness... He now wanted to live righteously. And that's what I think the Bible's talking about. Not the righteousness that Christ imputes to us, but actual personal holiness. Think about this. When you are walking in the Spirit and you are seeking to live righteously by God's Spirit, the way that God intends you to walk, and Satan comes up and starts throwing darts at you, and you are determined by God's strength to not give in. You're like Superman at that point. When you're walking in the Spirit, those darts are just bouncing right off your breastplate of righteousness. You realize that you can take your whole life to build your Christian testimony, and in one second you can destroy it. And you don't do this for pride. You do this for the glory of God. And when you are practicing righteousness, it becomes a defensive weapon against temptations that God throws up against you. You are powerless in yourself to resist these temptations, but by God's weapons, you have the opportunity to do it. It talks about the gospel, our feet being ready with the gospel. It says that we're prepared, that we're ready with the gospel of peace. We get to do something really cool in this terrible battle. We get to proclaim peace with God. And the Bible says people who take up the armor of God are prepared. Their feet are ready to take the gospel of peace to other people. Because we know that we have peace with God, we have no enemy to fear. And we get to spread this peace among people who desperately need to hear it. When he talks about faith, notice that he says faith, not the faith. He's not talking about a body of doctrine. He's not talking about the truth, but rather just simple trust in God. We have faith in God. You have faith in the pew that you're sitting in that is going to hold you up. We have trust. Hebrews 11.6 says that faith is believing that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Friends, I hope that you've experienced this. When you're truly and fully trusting God in this moment, don't temptations lose their power? When you're trusting God, don't temptations not look as tempting? Faith is a powerful tool. Let's say you have an unfortunate experience. Perhaps even a tragedy happened to you. Satan begins throwing his little flaming darts at you. He tells you, God doesn't really love you. Why would he allow this to happen? You know, if you had lived holier, maybe this wouldn't have happened. If you're not trusting God when Satan attacks, these darts hit their mark. But when you are trusting God these darts fizzle out in your faith. They just completely extinguish them. So listen, if we know that Satan would lob his flaming darts at Jesus, if Satan was as bold to tempt Jesus, 
We'd be foolhardy to think that he's not coming after us. Salvation. The helmet of salvation, just as a helmet helps you to keep your head on straight, so does having assurance about our relationship with God. You remember the story of Elijah. He, he faced down 450 prophets of a false god. And then he cowered at one mean lady. 450 prophets, and he kills them. And then one lady says, I'm going to get you. And he tucks his little man dress and runs and hides in a cave. What's, what's Jesus, what, what does God do to him? He comes to him and he finds him in the cave and he tells him, brother, we have a relationship. Just as I protected you from the 450, I can protect you from the one. And then he gives Elijah a job and sends him out. He gives him assurance of his relationship, that they are in a saving relationship. There's more work for Elijah to do. And there is a sense in which if we know we are in a right relationship with God, the more likely we are to be of sound mind and moving in the right direction. And then scripture. The sword is the only specifically offensive weapon that's discussed in this passage. And when this passage talks about the word of God, we're tempted to think of the word logos. Logos means general word. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used is rimah. And that is the difference between a general word that covers kind of everything and a specific word addressed to a situation. Well, in that sense, how do we know we have all these weapons? Faith, truth, righteousness, because it's in the Bible. God has given us specific, not general, specific words from the Bible that help us to be prepared for the fight. So where does the Bible place all this emphasis on spiritual warfare? There are really only two reasons that the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, and this is good. Because the temptation is for us to do like a 50-week study and chase down every little nook and cranny of this and to be unhealthily focused upon all this weird, evil spirituality. But whenever the Bible talks about the spiritual forces of wickedness, its emphasis is, number one, to remind us that evil and death are defeated. Now, they're not going down without a fight, but they are defeated. Jesus has demonstrably and totally defeated them in the cross. Number two, there's a desire on the scripture's part to warn us that while his head may be cut off, his body's still writhing around. He's still trying to do everything he can to foil God's plans. Think about the pride of Satan to know that he's defeated and to not have enough humility to repent and try to get on the winning team. He he is going to go down tooth and claw fighting as much as he can. So we have to ask ourselves, we've talked about how much we need God's strength. We've talked about how scary our foes are. We've talked about all of this stuff that we're supposed to put on. Does it actually work? Does it actually work? And I would suggest that there are four battles in Scripture that are just fascinating to think about here quickly. Number one, we see Satan's battle against God in heaven. We talked about Satan in the heavenlies rebelling against God. Um, Satan fought against God. Did he win or did he lose? He lost. He got kicked out of heaven. Boom. Absolutely defeated. Now, he's in exile. He's, he's here. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's rebelling still, but he lost the battle. Uh, number two, we see Satan's fight, not against God, but Satan's fight against mankind in the person of Adam without Christ. Did Satan win or did he lose there? He won. He won. Because as Adam sinned, we all went straight down the line with him. Now, it's a temporary victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. Number three, 
We think about Satan's battle against Christ. Did he win or did he lose this one? Boy, he thought he won. He really did. I killed him. He's dead. But Christ's death, which was an apparent victory for Satan, was the actual tool that God used to vanquish him. But then number four, we see Satan fighting against mankind again in the person of Peter. And there's a great passage here in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. Jesus says this to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan's coming after you, big boy. He wants to eat you up and destroy you. Verse 32, Jesus says, But I, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Fight number two, fight number four, Satan versus mankind, and he wins in number two. Satan versus mankind, number four, against, against Peter, and Satan loses. What's the difference? Peter had Christ. Adam didn't. Peter was understanding what it means to put on this armor. This spiritual warfare stuff is important, not because it's interesting, but because God says it works. So for our third and final point, let me, be, let me be really clear about something because we face a specific challenge as American Christians that other people in the world do not face. If you have heard all of this and thought, whew, now I'm safe against the devil and I'm safe against all his minions, you have perhaps genuinely missed the point. All the commands in this passage, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, to uh, put on the armor of God, and thirdly, uh, verse 14, to stand firm. All of those verbs occur in the plural. So it's not, hey Scott, you be strong in the Lord, you put on the armor, you stand firm. It's not, you know, uh, hey, hey, Drew, you, you do this. It's, hey, you all. Y'all. I mean, that's a South Carolina term. Hey, y'all. Take the strength of the Lord. Y'all put on the armor. Y'all stand firm. And listen, I, it's been a long time since I've played Red Rover, Red Rover. But if your team is going to win, what do you need to do? You need to fortify the smallest and weakest person on your team. Listen, you don't have to teach a boy. Go find the 30-pound girl and run her over. Uh, that just kind of comes naturally. And listen, you, you, it might be fine for you that you're standing in the strength of the Lord, but someone sitting on the very pew beside you is struggling this morning. We have a responsibility as the people of God to stand and strengthen each other corporately. That is what being a part of the family of God is all about. And so this is directed at a group of people, not individuals. And we corporately are in a war. We're not merely isolated individuals in our own self-defense. We have to understand this corporately. So while we have a responsibility to defend ourselves, we also have a responsibility to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why our third point is that spiritual warfare is most clearly manifested in warfare prayer. 
Look at these last two verses, uh, verse 18 and 20. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul issues five specific instructions for how a spiritual warrior should pray. And this goes far beyond the typical Southern Baptist Church's prayer meeting. Do you see how he tells us to pray? First, he tells us to pray with all prayer. Now, many of you are familiar with the fact that there are a variety of different ways to pray. You know it's okay to pray with your eyes open. That's what you should do when you're driving. There are prayers of praise. There are prayers of confession. There are uh, prayers for others. There are prayers of thanks. Paul is telling us to use variety, use every tool in the toolbox when you pray. And specifically, he says here, uh, prayers and petitions. Use all prayer, all kinds of prayer. Don't just be, thanks for the food, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, amen, boom. I'm done with my prayers for the day. He's saying, pray with all prayers. Secondly, he tells us how frequently to pray. He says, pray at all times. Now, that's not a sign-up on your little tear-off on your bulletin because no one would sign up. We have jobs. We have families. Who wants to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Nobody. Here's the best illustration I've heard of that. Everyone has, um, I think nowadays, has a cell phone. And when you're on the phone with your wife, it's an important conversation. Men, it's an important conversation if your wife calls you. But your buddy calls in while you're on the phone, and what does your phone do? Doop. Doop. You got something reminding you that there's someone on the other line. So what do you do? Whatever is the most important phone call, you say, hey, hey, honey, can you excuse me for just a second while I take this other phone call? You take the other phone call, you do your business, and then what do you do when you're done with that second conversation? You click back to the important conversation. Listen, instead of seeing your prayers as isolated little things throughout your day, view prayer as a day-long conversation with God. You know, sometimes other people buzz in, and you have to deal with that. You know, you got to pay the bills. You know, you got to walk the dog. you got to clean the house. But man, as soon as you're done with that conversation, get back to it. Pray at all times. That doesn't mean 24 hours, literally. It just means that you're constantly having a conversation with God. 30 tells us how to pray. Effective warfare prayer is only done in the spirit, not in the flesh. If you've never experienced this, ask God to give it to you in your prayer life. Fourth, he tells us the manner of prayer. He tells us to to pray alertly with all perseverance. This is, I think, related to the frequency of prayer. Everything we see should be a cause for prayer. You're at work, you see your boss coming. He's coming to talk to you. Pray for him. Pray for the conversation. Are you heading home from work? Pray that you can put the distractions of work away so that you can be the spouse and parent, neighbor that you need to be. A lot of guys need to detox when they get home from work. Do it in the car. Decompress. Pray. Do you see, um, you see someone in front of you driving like an idiot? Definitely pray for them. Pray, pray, pray. If you were mindful of all of the ways that God is bringing things that you should pray for to your mind, do you think you would pray more than you are? Fifth, he tells us the objects of prayer. He says, pray for all the saints. Wow. It's a challenge for me to try to pray through the membership role at Northside Baptist Church. 
Paul says, keep going. Pray for all the saints. We may not know them by name, but the point here is not to be so self-focused, parochial, and limited like most of our prayers for. You can pray for all kinds of believers. There are believers right now this morning in Morocco that are being killed for their faith. There are uh, little girls in Indonesia that are being beheaded by their father because they're Muslim and becoming a Christian is outlawed by the government. There are Christians who are depressed. There are Christians who have uh, faced all kinds of dangerous situations this morning and discouraging and depressing situations. Pray for them. Pray for God to strengthen people going through different d- difficult things. Pray for believers in war-torn countries. Pray for believers who are suffering from star- starvation. Pray for believers who are effective and energized about sharing the gospel. Paul's saying, don't just pray for you and yours. Pray for all the saints. And Paul concludes by using himself as an example. In verses 19 through 20, he, he, he closes by requesting prayer for himself. And this is not the apostle, in a rare sense, being um, selfish. This is not a selfish prayer. It oozes with the glory of God and passion for the gospel. Look at what he says. He says, pray that I might speak. And this is not just any kind of speech, but that he might speak boldly. And this is not just arrogant, bold speech, but it's speaking boldly about the gospel. And so he concludes by all of this by saying, listen, if we're really truly going to understand what it means to be in warfare, we do it by praying prayers for Christians to take up God's strength, to put on his armor, and we pray that God might do that in the lives of the people that we know and even in people that we don't know. Because we don't just pray, we don't just limit our prayers for our small circle where everybody knows your name. We pray for all the saints because that's who's in our family. It's everyone who trusts in the name of God. So friends, this morning as we have our invitation, I would just simply ask, where are you at with your engagement in spiritual warfare? Are you really trusting in God's strength or are you trusting in your own? Are you even conscious of the fact that God has given you tools that he says he will bless with his strength to help you stand against the devil. Maybe you're not going through any kind of um, turmoil or trouble right now. Maybe you don't sense that you're in, in warfare. But there are people who are. Are you praying for them? So friends, listen. This, we're dealing with realities that are unseen. If we could see spiritual warfare and Fox News could report it, we'd be great because then we'd know what's going on. Most of the time we're clueless about it until after it happens. Get in the battle. I don't say that because you're going to get beat up. I say that because God has promised you victory. So if you're struggling this morning, brother and sister in Christ, God offers you his gospel and he offers you his power to fight the battle in his strength. Won't you do it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this word from your word that uh, we can join you in the fight. Lord, we pray that you strengthen us by your spirit to be more effective warriors for Jesus. And we thank you that we are not uh, those who are dead in our spirit, but those who are alive because Christ has made us alive through the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.